0: Well, excuse our uh, kids for uh, children's shirts or kids club ages four through eight and maybe they already left. They're leaving right now. So thank you all for coming today. My name is Austin. It's a privilege to introduce our guest speaker today. His name is Rodney Johnson, Pastor Rodney Johnson from Aberdeen, South Dakota, New Life Fellowship. He has some family in town today. So that's why he's here. Is anybody related to, uh, to Rodney? Can you raise your hand? Some people are, some people aren't. So we got some issues there. But uh, Rodney grew up in uh, uh, Bakersfield, California. He was um, a great basketball player, recruited by Kentucky and Duke, and decided to play for Trinity Bible College in Ellendale, strictly a, uh, a sacrificial gift that he gave to Trinity. And uh, later on, he married my oldest daughter, Annie, back there, and three children Joey, Jett, and Ari. Hopefully they're not burning down the church or anything like that, but uh, it's great to have Rodney here today. Let's give him a warm Calvary welcome today.
1: (laughs) There's only one problem as we get uh, started, and that uh, someone stole my notes. They were like right up there. Does anyone know anything about that? Because this is going to get awkward in a second. Because there's already, you guys already know this probably, there's already this kind of distrust between North and South Dakota. And so, uh, so I mean, this is just a little bit awkward to start, but uh, we're going to roll either way, and Shane's going to figure that out for me. Um, I am excited to be here. Thanks for that warm introduction from my father-in-law. It was kind of weird when Coach K called, and you know, and, and Duke was like, you want to play, and I, you know, they, when I went in, they brought the lights down, and they called my name, and I just thought, you know, for me, it's Trinity, for me, it's Trinity, and so... Uh, I've played lots of church league basketball in my life after my career. Yes, thank you, sir. Those chicken scratches are my notes. Um, And I have specifically, specifically played a lot of basketball at Calvary. And uh, I want you guys to know that although you lack some major talent, you have a lot of heart. And so uh, (laughs) I've got a ton of memories here, you guys. I've got a ton of memories here. I remember my first, uh, 2001, my first time I ever came to Calvary. You guys were obviously at the old facility. Um, Wanted to impress my father in law. Sang in the choir. Anyone here remember the choir? You guys don't have that anymore? Sang in the choir. Don't read music, but I didn't tell him that. Um, I remember junior high, middle high lock ins. I remember realizing for the first time uh, that this church is a bit different because I went to a middle high lock in and about one in the morning, literally, Forty kids were doing a conga line around the middle high room with a cowbell. And, and Christ was just being exalted through that experience. But I remember uh, thinking, wow, what's going to become of those kids? And now uh, I see one of them at the sound booth. Got married here in 2002. My grandpa-in-law did the wedding. Just, I just have so many memories here. So many memories. And I was trying to identify as I spoke to you guys this morning, what is my favorite memory of this church? And I I think it has to be walking into the basement of the old Calvary and walking in there for the first time and having this realization after I was done in that basement. You guys remember that old basement? Having this realization that my father-in-law would never beat me in basketball ever. And so uh, that rings true to this day. You guys thought I was about to get serious there, didn't you? (laughs) But this is in some ways kind of my roots. And uh, we got married in this place. We thought we were going to probably end up in Fargo. God had different plans. We plugged into a church, Ann and I, about uh, 11 years ago called New Life, and we had no idea what God had in store for us. And so we were at that church, and we were meeting in a hotel, and a few years in, my relationship with that church, I had just finished my master's degree in counseling, and uh, I felt like God was calling me into ministry. And so I I went into ministry. They could only afford me part-time, and so I became a part-time youth pastor and supplemented my income in a whole bunch of other ways, uh, mainly counseling still. And then about five to six years ago, Uh, Some amazing things happened, Um, and to everyone's surprise, I became the senior pastor at New Life, and so it's just been this crazy, crazy experience for me, and God's done some amazing things through that that time in my life where he's molded and shaped me, And and I definitely consider just kind of the people here as definitely people that have spoken to my life. And so, when I went into that job, I literally, it was one of those situations where God worked not because of me, but in spite of me, and uh, he's worked in some amazing ways, and the church has taken on kind of a whole different face, kind of year after year, we've seen some major changes in our church, and and I want to talk to you guys this morning about something that happened a few weeks ago in our church, but before I get there, I just want to kind of unpack for you um, how I got to a place where... uh, as, I'm, as I'm, I'm dealing with this situation, and I'm just realizing I'm in way over my head, as I, get, I, as I get into a certain situation in the church, I realize, like, how far the church has come. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. We were at a size where, when I first started, I knew everyone's business. It's like a dysfunctional small town, right? That's ministry, what it looked like for me. But as the ministry changed, my job description started changing. And I think now, about five or six years in, my job description has changed two or three times. And it's changed in a way where the most of the people at New Life, and a few of you actually are here today from New Life, so that's awesome. Most of the people I don't know anymore. And so so the reason I say that is, uh, number one, as a pastor, you don't go into ministry thinking you're not going to know most of the people in your church. But as I, as I went into that situation, I didn't start uh, to know as many people. What I found is when we started having support staff, that they were dealing with different issues in the church, and things weren't usually getting to me as far as one-on-one stuff with the church unless there was a crisis. And, and so there's a lot of things in church that I don't even know that are going on anymore. And so uh, as, I, as I'm kind of processing what that even looks like, and, and it's kind of thinking that's kind of a weird thing, you don't think that's going to happen in ministry, A few weeks ago, that just slammed me right in the face because what happens now is when things do get to me, a lot of times they're big. These kind of crisis situations. And so, a few weeks ago in our church, we had a crisis situation. I was hunting with some pastors in Minneapolis and I got a call from one of our staff. And the only reason this person would call me repeatedly if something was wrong. And, And so, she's calling me repeatedly and then she ends up calling a friend of mine and I pick up the phone. And the first thing she tells me in a very panicked tone is Jim is dead. I'm going, what do you mean Jim is dead? She said, Jim Stern is dead. Jim Stern's a 42-year-old person, man at our church that recently was baptized. He's been saved for about two years. Jim has five kids, ages 18 through 9. His wife is 36 years old. And Erica said, Jim Stern is dead. And so Jim, although I don't know some people in New Life, Jim was a good friend of mine. Jim was a guy I went to lunch with. Jim was a guy whose relationship I treasured. Uh, he was killed in a work accident. It was very sudden. He probably never even saw it coming. Uh, he went, it was election day. He went and voted with his wife. Two hours later, he was with Jesus. And so I can't say this about everyone in ministry, but Jim was someone that I was very much excited to see on a Sunday morning. He was someone that would always find me, and he would always look intently in my eyes, and he would always say, man, you have no idea, Rodney, how much I love this church. And you have no idea what Christ has done in my life. Like, I I was a dead man walking, and he's opened my heart to the gospel, I mean, he, he's that guy in ministry that that's the reason that you go to, into ministry. And like I said, we, I was able to baptize him last year. I just want you guys to kind of feel like you know him just a little bit. Uh, this is a picture of Jim being baptized by uh, Mark, a pastor of ours, and myself. And I can specifically remember we baptize at the lake each summer. I can specifically remember Jim came out of the water last summer, and he gave me a massive bear hug. You can just leave that picture up for a little bit. I mean, one of the, he was a strong guy, he was a farmer, and it was kind of one of those hugs where they kind of, like, crack your ribs. And he said, right in my ear, I'm just so thankful, I'm just so thankful for what Jesus has done in my life, and the reality is, in Aberdeen, he's actually in Webster, but he came to church and made that 50-mile jaunt each Sunday with his family. In Webster, they're going to miss him, I'm going to miss him, and my question for you guys is this, this morning. How do you deal with that type of pain? How do you deal with the pain of life when your best friend or your husband or your wife or God forbid, even your child goes to be with the Lord? And my bigger question is this, and you can pull out of your bulletin some notes and just fill some things in today. I want to say as we get started, I really have no desire to preach at you. I want to speak with you, and I hope that something I say kind of resonates in your heart this morning. My question is this, what does that type of loss looks like, look like, and then specifically, what does your prayer life look like in the midst of that type of raw pain? And I'd like you to write this down, because this has been true in my own life. I'm going to talk about trauma this morning, and I just want to tell you this, that prayer, this isn't in your notes, you've got to write this in. Prayer is your biggest tool when dealing with trauma. For me, in my own life, and I think if you look at Scripture and you look at key characters, you will find that prayer is your biggest tool when dealing with trauma. And so when disaster strikes, the only real, lasting comfort that you're going to find or that I'm going to find is crying out to Jesus. And so here's what I mean by that. I have a counseling background. Let me explain. Do you need, in the midst of tragedy... Do you need to process your feelings? Yes, right? Everyone would say yes, that's a healthy thing. Do you need to connect with others in the body of Christ that are going to help you? Of course, right? But prayer is the biggest tool in your tool bag when you're dealing with trauma. Because there are just times in life when it gets really thick and it gets very, very difficult that that's the only thing that's going to truly help you is that relationship with Jesus. Like no one, there's certain tragedies in life, no one's going to understand. Julianne's, Jim's wife, like uh, how do you connect with that, just having a conversation over coffee where everything gets better? I don't have anything for her as a pastor. I can't say, well if you just meet with these five ladies who've also dealt with hard times, your life's going to get better very quickly. I don't have a promise like that for her. I mean, my thing for Juliana is just praise God Jim knew Jesus, but just I'm just crying with her on Sunday morning, and I'm just saying, Juliana, I'm sorry. I am so incredibly sorry, and I cannot relate to what you're going through, and I can't imagine what you're going through, but Jesus is good. Jesus is an amazing Savior. He promises to never leave you or forsake you, and in the midst of your trauma... He is the one person that not only understands, but sits with you right in the midst of your pain. And so I want to talk with you guys this morning about a story in the Bible that's really just a tough one. Everyone know King David? The book of Psalms, David and Absalom. Absalom is David's son. David's the anointed king of Israel, and Absalom... Started coming after his throne. It's not a very pretty picture. And the Bible says that the hearts of Israel actually turned towards Absalom and away from David. And so they lived back in the old school, Old Testament times where there wasn't a vote every four years for power. And so this was a monarchy. And so, unless King David was willing to give up his throne peacefully, the only way his son could have it is if he killed his dad. And so, these fickle, disloyal people, some of them started turning on David. And now we find in Psalm chapter 4 that David is hiding in a cave, fearful of his life, with just a select group of loyal followers. And now the report, as we enter into this text, the report comes to David that his son Absalom has been murdered. And so on one side of the coin, he's probably like, well, at least I can be in relief because my son's not trying to kill me anymore. But on the other side of the coin, he has this stark realization that his son is dead. And so I'm sure he's broken with grief. And I want you guys to get a first-hand account of what it looks like to pray through pain. And so if you, if you open your Bibles to Psalm chapters 4, we're going to just walk through this short psalm, and I want to pull some principles out of it. But how does King David pray through pain? Look at verse 1, Psalm chapter 4. You can see it on the screen. David says, this. he says, answer me, God, when I call. O God of my righteousness, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Would you be gracious to me, and would you hear my Number one, praying through pain, David runs to God. And so here's my question, to you guys. How incredibly easy would it be for King David in this moment of pain to not run to God, but turn around and just bolt? And just run from God? How about this one? How incredibly easy would it be for King David to blame God, to avoid calling on his name, And I think we would be making a massive mistake if we didn't stick ourselves in this story. Put ourselves in that cave and insert ourselves right into the middle of all that's going on and say, God, you stuck me in this stinking cave. And I'm running for my life. And now to make things even worse, my own son has to die. My own son's trying to take my life, trying to take my kingship. And now I have lost my son I mean, put yourself in the story. What, what, what is that one thing that you could insert into that life circumstance? Or let's use Jim as an example. I mean, God, why, why did Jim have to die? He was 42 years old. I mean, couldn't Jim live to be an old man and just pass in his sleep Couldn't he have just been like 85 years old, and if you're older than that, then that's not that old, right? But for everyone else, I mean, couldn't he have just been like 85 years old, and passed in his sleep, and had five or ten of his grandkids all around him, singing a hymn, and couldn't have just been like that, God? Why 42 years old? Now why are you being so incredibly unfair? Because we know God's not the author of pain, and he's not the author of bad things. But we know that uh, on some level, he does allow bad things to happen. Because uh, in Jim's situation, he went to be with Jesus. And so I want to speak into that for just a second and say this. just let, Let's put this in light of the gospel. Number one, Jim's not dead. All right, Jim's with Jesus Christ. And right now, Jim is standing at the throne of God, and, and he's where all of us who are in Christ should long to be. But how easy would it be in that moment of pain to stand over God in judgment and to bring Him into our own courtroom and find Him incredibly guilty of being unfair in our lives? How easy would it be to say, God, I thought you loved me? I thought I was one of the good guys. I'm a member of my local church. I tithe regularly, I'm a good husband. I'm a decent father. Why are you being so unfair? It's the problem, and you can write this down. The problem with playing judge and jury in the midst of our pain is that we will always run from God instead of to Him. I mean, how easy is it to blame God as being unjust, unloving, and unfaithful? And what if God... What if God knows what we can't possibly comprehend in the midst of our pain? What if in the midst of our pain God is actually working all things for the good, and he's taking this trauma that he did not initiate, but he's using this trauma to initiate a closer relationship with his son Jesus. And so we see David in this text, and he's actually running to God instead of from God. And then in the verse two, he says, O men how long shall my honor be turned into shame and how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? And so he's speaking to the people that have turned their back on him. He's giving this little leadership moment and then in verse 3 he makes this profound statement. He says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. And so I want you to look at this in your bulletin and see that in this moment I truly believe like as a grief counselor that David is taking this moment he's finding his identity in God. Because he makes this statement, he says, the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself, and that's the heart of the Gospel. That we're walking in death, we're walking in destruction, and God takes us through the blood of His Son, Jesus, and He pulls us from that, and He sets us apart into new life. And so the reason I bring that up is this. This is my experience. Nothing, write this down, nothing will rock your world Nothing will strip your identity faster than trauma. And David says, I'm being set apart by God in the midst of my pain. Think about in David's life all the things that he would have had identity crisis with. He tries to find his identity in kingship, and now he's running for his life, and he's sitting in a cave. And he tries to find his identity in sexual relationships, and he ends up killing a guy who's innocent. innocent. He tries to find his identity in parenting and we all know who that goes in this story. So God's not the author of tragedy, but he definitely takes tragedy and uses that tragedy to work all things for the good for those who love him. I was thinking back about my own identity and how that relates to my own life. Like, I'm not exempt from that. I'm not exempt from taking my superficial things in this life and, and using those things to try to create some environment where i'm a bigger deal than i really am we had this prayer series going on right now in our church and in the middle of this prayer series we decided to have a prayer night where we pulled out all the chairs from the sanctuary and pews might be a little harder but you could probably still pull it off if you were creative and our college students took all the all the chairs out they did it all themselves and they put tape on the floor, and they taped down every single street in Aberdeen. And I know that you think that we're not as big as Fargo, but we have a few streets, okay? And we, and we taped down every street in Aberdeen, and for five hours, the church came together, and we laid on the floor, and we just prayed over our community. And I remember thinking, wow, that, that is such a good idea for everyone else. And as a leader, I was feeling pretty proud of myself. Because every once in a while you have this concept, and you're like, "That's just a good idea." But I remember by about nine thirty, God is, is is talking to me in prayer, and and I'm praying to Him and singing praises to His name, and He's just rocking my identity. And He starts saying these things to my heart that I don't want to hear, things like, "You have found way too much identity in being a dad or a husband." or more specifically in more superficial things like being called a pastor. You have found way too much identity in this thing that's your profession going well. Like, like God's looking at me and I don't want to hear it, but he's just like, you are not in any way a big deal. i like, God, are you Are you sure? I mean, could God be taking even the most difficult of life circumstance, and and He's not creating that circumstance, but could He be using it to break down your identity and rescue your heart? I mean, if we were just to be very raw and honest and put down all of our church facades this morning, we would have to concede that we walk in here with all sorts of unhealthy identity. And so write this down. It's my experience that good things become very bad things when we give good things unhealthy value in our lives. And let me just bring this back around. Here's why I really say that. I had a conversation with Jim's wife right after he died, and I had the same conversation after my father died about six years ago with my mom. In the midst of their grief, in the midst of their crisis, in the midst of my personal crisis... I specifically remember both of these women telling me very recently and six years ago, man, I don't know where my identity's at. Because I didn't even realize it, but I've been putting my identity in the fact that I'm a wife. And now that's gone. David says, I've been set apart. That's my identity. That's my focus. New Testament translation, Christ went to a cross, took my place. That's my identity. I am a child of God, and everything else can be stripped from me in a second. I'm just one breath away from being in a completely different environment. I have zero control. He says in verse 4, he says, be angry and don't sin. And he says, ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. And so what you see right there taking place is that third point. David is examining his heart. I mean, you're never going to find identity in Christ if you don't have that reflection time at that prayer night where you're praying over your city and everything's duct taped down on the floor and you're sitting alone with God and saying, God, reveal to me my heart. David's examining his heart and he's an example to all of us. He says, ponder in your hearts and on your beds and be silent. Notice what he talks about when he's talking about grief. I mean, he's in the middle of a grief cycle. What's the first thing he talks about when he talks about examining his heart? He talks about dealing with anger. He says, be angry and don't sin. Counselors have identified a few things about grief, and one of the things they've found is that people typically deal with some type of anger when they're going through pain. Are you guys familiar with those five stages of grief? And a lot of times when you're dealing with grief, when you're dealing with pain, you start to feel angry, you don't even know it. And for me, when I have things in my own heart that I'm dealing with that I don't even know exist, God has given me a special gift. He's given me a very outspoken wife. Like I don't get the luxury like some of you guys do of having issues in my life that don't get brought right to the forefront because my wife is like half Italian. And so when I'm pondering the things in my heart and when they don't come to the surface, I have the Holy Spirit, but I also have my wife Anne. She's like, I think something's off, right? I'll be dealing with something. I'll be stressed about work. I'll be uh, getting a big head about something or whatever it is. And she'll just bring me back down to reality. She says, I think there's something going on in your heart right now. You need to examine your heart. Because you talk about all of these things on Sunday, but it's not connecting Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and so on. But David takes this time when he's going through grief and he says, ponder these things in your own hearts and on your beds be silent." He says, in your anger, don't sin. So maybe you're going through a tragedy right now in your life, and you're thinking, well, I think I've got all of this under control, but everyone else around you is going, I think I feel a little bit of underlying tension. I don't think everything is okay like you're leading us to believe. And and in this moment of tragedy, David has this incredible self-awareness, and look at what he says in verse 5. I love this one. In verse 5, he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. And so what is he talking about? When you make a sacrifice in the Old Testament, what's going on is this idea of worship. And so what I think King David is telling us in this text is he's praying and he's singing out to God Is he's saying, in the midst of my struggle, in the midst of my pain, I'm going to make a sacrifice to the, to the Lord. And what I'm really going to do is I'm just going to worship God in this storm, I'm going to put everything aside, and I'm just going to worship my God. And I just want to go back a little bit here. I mean, how incredibly easy would it be in the midst of our pain, would it be to run from God instead of to him and say, I'm not going to worship, I'm not even going to show up in church, I'm not going to let anyone into my life, I'm going to pretend like everything's okay, I'm going to do my thing, but God, don't ask me to worship, because when I worship, it's going to break me down and I don't want to go there right now. I mean, what's so incredibly difficult sometimes about worship is it demands surrender. Like I'm singing this morning, and it's, and it's your praise will ever be on my lips, and it just starts breaking me down. Everything else in my mind starts to go to the wayside because I'm having this spiritual, intimate Moment with my creator. And so a a couple of weeks ago I was in church and I saw this all play out firsthand in the most powerful way I've ever experienced worship. David's talking about worshiping God and and I'm actually giving a lot of the same tenets of this message and and there's this crowd from Webster and, and and the service is just extraordinarily full and it's because of this. there's like 50 people from Webster I think that come to the service that day. And in the front row is mom and five children. And throughout this process of dealing with this family, I made a new friend, and her name is Willa. And I actually asked Willa and her mom if I could share this story, and she said, go for it. And so I I know I'm going to be talking about worship. I know I'm going to be talking about praying through pain. I know I'm going to be talking about the story of David. And while I'm having this conversation in church, right before I get up to preach, I look to my right, all the way to the corner, and I see the whole family raising their hands to Jesus. And I see this nine year old girl, Willa, their last child, the baby of the family, with tears just streaming down her face. And her hands lifted, and she just lost her daddy on a Tuesday, and she's weeping and worshiping Christ. I don't think I've ever seen anything as powerful as that in worship. And it was just this living example that in the midst of our pain, as we are crying out to God, that God gives us worship as a means to bring healing to our hearts. I mean, how many Baptists do we have in the crowd? I would assume most of you, right? I mean, even, and we're like non-denominational, but let me just give you a little secret. We're kind of Baptists. That's just code name for, you know, maybe, maybe Pentecostal with a seatbelt, but really Baptist. <laughs> How many times do we look at worship and we're like, well, I'm going to run through these three songs. Rodney already noticed he's talking about two minutes over. We're about to get out the chain and just kind of pull him off the stage here. We got one worship song left. Don't push me. And then we go through a crisis and we're dealing with Trauma. And we get our identity stripped for us, from us. And one of these key fundamental gifts that Christ gives us in the midst of our pain is just worshiping Jesus. And I watched this nine-year-old girl figure this out and she could just put us to shame. Look how David closes this text. I'm about done. He says, there are many who say, who will show us some good. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You've put more joy in my heart than they have with their grain and with their wine. And so he's saying, I've had it all, I've had a lot of carbs, I've had a lot of alcohol, and nothing compares to being in your presence. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so the last thing I want to tell you is this, when David is going through the pain and tragedy of life, just losing his son, sitting in a cave, he stays in God's presence. So he's running to God. He's finding his identity in God and God alone. He's worshiping God. He's examining his heart, and now he's just sitting in the presence of God. And he prays to him in an amazing way when he's dealing with this pain, he tells God how good he is. And he prays with this rightly aligned perspective and says, the joy you put in my heart is better than all the grain or all the wine that this world has to offer and what's so interesting about all of this is he's sitting in a cave when he's talking. When he's, when he's saying these things to God, he, he's not sitting in his throne. And he makes this profound statement. He says, I'm, I'm in right in the middle of my struggle, but I have a peace in my heart. I have a peace in my heart. And, and when I lie down at night, I'm okay. And when I fall asleep at night in the midst of all that's going on, I'm okay. Okay. I mean, if we were to be very honest, wouldn't we have to concede that in the middle of our pain, what we're really looking for is peace? Isn't that what we're really looking for? And David understands fundamentally that the peace that's offered through God will always be bigger than his pain. So I don't know where everyone's at this morning, but I just want to close with the gospel. And I want to close with this reality that the only way that any of us can ever experience peace in the midst of our cave is because of Jesus. That Jesus sets us apart and he comes down in humble means and he lives on this earth. I mean, that's what Christmas is all, right, all about. And he lives his life in a way that's perfect and he goes to a cross and he dies in our place and he rises from the dead so that we can have life And his death and resurrection absolutely changes everything. And we don't have to sit like a hopeless people in the midst of our pain because we know what comes next. We know that because Jesus rose from the dead, we can have life. And we are hurting people. We are a broken people because of sin. But we do not live in a way that's hopeless like the rest of the world. And Jesus can provide this peace in the midst of a cave. And so as we close out this morning, I'm going to close in prayer. I imagine that a lot of you are Christians, but I just want to ask you, maybe you're not, do you know Jesus? Do you know the peace that David's talking about in this text? Not do you know of Christ, do you know him as your personal savior? Have you laid your own life down and picked up your cross and said, Jesus, I want to follow you? And if you know Christ this morning, then I just want to get in your business for. Like 10 seconds real quick, and I want to ask you, and if everyone could just look at me, are you sitting in a spiritual cave? Because last night, this is this is how I do things. Last night, I'm sitting on my uh, in-law's guest bed. Anyone not sleep as well in their own bed?) <laughs> And there's always something that starts wrestling in me if I know I'm going to speak, uh, especially in a different environment. And the one thing that kept coming back to me over and over and over again is this concept that so many of us, in our own pride, lacking identity in Christ, lacking any true authentic worship, sitting in the presence of God Almighty, are sitting in spiritual dark caves. And I just want to ask you this morning: would would you take a step like David and step outside of that spiritually dark cave and into the presence of God? And maybe you've been fooling everyone else and you are not fooling your Savior. And you're just going through the motions and you're doing all the right things, and everyone in your family at Thanksgiving thinks everything's fine, and in your heart, you know that you are so far from God. Because you're sitting in a spiritual cave, and you're not staying in his presence, and you're not worshiping him, and you're not finding your identity in him, and the last thing you're ever doing is running to him, you're running from him, and you are far from him. Would you just take a moment, as I close in prayer, and have a little time with Jesus this morning. Let's go to the Lord. Jesus, I just thank you so much that you would open up doors that I could speak here this morning. And and some of us walk into this place and we're hurting. Maybe we've lost that loved one that I talked about this morning. Maybe our kids, like David's, are rebelling and they're far from you. But we, we just want to proclaim this morning that in the midst of our pain, we want to run to you instead of from you. We want to declare that you are good. We want to declare that you have set us apart, purchased us with your blood. If there's anyone that doesn't know you this morning, that right now I just would ask that they would cry out to you as Savior. That they would stop leaning on their own good works to get them to heaven, and they would call out on you and say, Jesus, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I believe you died in my place, that you rose from the dead so that I could have life, and I want to be a part of your kingdom. I'm so sick of living in a spiritually dark cave. And for others of us that know you this morning, just pray that you would open our hearts to the reality that we are not called to be robotic in our faith. We are not called to stay in caves spiritually, but we are called to find our identity in you, and to worship you, and to just stay in your presence, and to be set apart as salt and light. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Everybody said, amen. Amen. At this time, we are going to take offering. Well, um, I'll take a moment to invite the ushers forward and pray for our offering. Father, we do thank you that you are ever-present.